Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Gathering Podcast. Amen. It's good to be with you all. Yes. Can we show some love for our worship this morning? I always love it when I get to come to Eastside, so it is good to be here on this. I mean, I, I will say the Spring Forward Sundays are not my favorite Sundays. Um, I, I love to fall back, don't get me wrong. I'm always preaching on that Sunday. But the last few years, I figured out how to like skip this Sunday. But, you know, I'm happy to be here at this 9 a.m. service uh, with you all. We, uh, we've been going through this series on the book of Hebrews, and if you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, the book of Hebrews is one of these books that is uh, kind of challenging, honestly. It is a very, it's a very Jewish book, and in that sense, it reflects so much of the Old Testament that I think sometimes we can get lost. But essentially what's happening is there is uh, this writer, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, it could be Priscilla, it could be Barnabas, it could be Paul, um, people don't really know, but, but he or she are, is writing to this little Jewish community of believers in Rome. And, and the, the tension in this small church is that they are tempted to go back on their faith in Christ as the Messiah. There are cultural pressures and social pressures to kind of give up on their faith in Jesus and to rejoin uh, essentially their, their Old Testament, their Jewish community. And that's a strong community. There are ethnic values and cultural values and religious values. And so over and over, the writer is trying to um, persuade and convince that, that Jesus is better, right? That God has spoken once and f- in the fullest and finalest way in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is the, the royal king as the son of God and the great high priest that he serves these two roles. And what I love about the book of Hebrews is that while many times we kind of reflect on what Jesus has done for us, looking backwards kind of at the cross and the resurrection and the gospel, Hebrews is really focused on what Jesus is doing for us right now, what he currently is doing for us, which is really uh, significant. Because you need him now. I don't know if you noticed. Um, and so today we are, we are looking at a passage that's it's kind of challenging at first. But I want to read through it and then we'll uh, explain it a little bit. And the writer is not really plain. And so the, the book is essentially these exhortations about the greatness of Jesus and then it's broken up with these warnings. And the warnings are, 
I don't think there's so much, there's, there's these debates between Calvinists and Arminianists on like, well, can people lose their salvation or not? And I think if you follow the stream of the book, he's saying, I believe that all of you are going to get in to the promised rest of Jesus, but I want you to take it seriously because Jesus took it seriously. And so it's going to require not earning Right? Grace, is, grace means we don't earn our salvation, but it does mean it's going to take some effort. We're going to have to strive. Right? We're going to have to trust. We're going to have to persevere in a world that's hostile um, to our faith. And so, so follow along with me in chapter 4, and we're just, I'll read through 1 through 11 here. He says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, speaking of uh, the Old Testament saints who had been delivered from Egypt. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day, and these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. For those of you that feel bad that you can't remember scripture references, I'm always encouraged that the person who wrote this book doesn't remember like Genesis 2. Um, like somewhere, I don't know where it was, somewhere, the creation story. And again, in the passage above, he says, they'll, sh- they'll never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today, This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. For if Joshua had been able to give them rest, God would not have spoken about a later another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. And so it's it's kind of this broken up, wonky passage, but essentially what he's talking about in the big picture is this place of rest. Where is that place where... Uh, You are safe and secure with God, where God keeps us. Uh, There is imagery throughout the scripture of God hiding us in the shadow of his wings, right? God keeping us in his rest. We, We think about that personally. We think about that communally. And for the people of God, this theme of entering God's rest was a big part of their story, 
because they had been rescued from being enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh, and that was just part of the story. The story was to move forward through the wilderness for 40 days, and then to enter into the promised land, and that land was promised way back to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and they were the generation who was to enter the rest, right? And so this writer is actually saying that 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 story, that scenario of them entering the promised land, that was the gospel, in a sense, being preached to them. And so he goes back and forth between these two stories, the creation story and the Canaan story. And he's, he uses the story of entering into the promised land to foreshadow heaven. He says, this is the gospel preached. And if you remember that story, they get up to the promised land and they're gonna go spy it out. And so they send 12 spies. They go into the land and it is just as God said. It's great. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. They they are to bring back some of the produce and vegetation of the land. So they bring back like these poles full of vines of grape and fruit and all these things and they bring it back after their two weeks of spying out the land people are amazed like they've been in the wilderness eating manna which the official definition of manna is what is it um they that's that's what manna means um they're like what is it okay let's just go with that um now we use that word for like, oh, it's manna. Like, it's this great thing. Um, anyways, you could keep going with that for a long time. So they get back. They got all this thing. They got all this abundance of the land. And yet, within this little group of 12, there is this great fear. There's giants in the land. There's Anakim. In other words... This land uh, belongs to other people. Even though God promised it to us, it's not fully ours. We would have to take it by faith. And so they have the first sort of uh, congregational vote, and it goes 10 to 2, and God loses. And then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The only three, uh, two that enter the land are Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else from that generation dies in the wilderness. They thought that they would have had a better rest in Egypt. They thought rather than persevering and trusting and letting God fight their battles in the midst of hostility, that, 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 that was required to gain the promises of God, they thought that was too much. And so let's go back to slavery. Let's go back to the, the barrenness of the wilderness. That will be a, a safer place where our faith can fit peacefully. And, 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 and essentially what they receive instead is judgment. And the writer wants them to remember this. He wants this Jewish community to see this because he's saying, if you give up the perseverance that it's going to take to fight this fight of faith and you exchange that for some kind of false rest that you can get right now, you are essentially doing what they did. You're giving up the 
promises of God for this judgment that you're going to incur upon yourself. And then he flips into this creation story, which is kind of you know wonky. All of a sudden he's talking about creation. And he, but he's essentially saying this, that God has always existed in his Sabbath rest. Since creation, he entered into his Sabbath rest. God doesn't need to enter it. He lives in it. God, uh, God has no problem resting because he created the world and he entered into his rest. We get to join him at some point where that rest is a celebration, where all things are the way they're supposed to be. But those who refuse to trust him, who are left to their own designs, who say, no, don't worry, God, I'll create my own rest, then we essentially end up dying to pursue these false rests. God invited you into his rest, which has been going really good since the creation of the world, but we decided, no, that's cool. We will figure it out ourselves. And they're judged for it. And so it brings us to the invitation that he's actually giving to this little community here in uh, the book of Hebrews. And he's using Canaan to point them to this heavenly rest that God has promised them to say, through Jesus, God has given us this greater rest, and that rest is still open to us. But their challenge as a community is that there's a more immediate rest that they are tempted to grab hold of. Uh, and, and it's not just the rest of kind of going back to Old Testament practices, that this is, this is happening doing, during the Judean War. So there is an uprising of zealots who are wanting to overthrow Rome and to establish God's Jewish kingdom on earth. And there's great temptation to join them, to, to reject Jesus, to join this revolt because they're being harassed all the time by Rome. Rome is an incredibly immoral um, nation, and here are these Jewish believers trying to live out their holy guidelines and their holy practices before God. They are ethnically marginalized, they're culturally marginalized, and so if they could actually overthrow Rome that is always harassing them and establish God's Jewish kingdom, they would have political rest. They would have cultural, ethnic, religious rest. It would be so tangible to them that if they actually achieve victory, it meant, man, they have their own history, their own culture, like their faith will fit nicely into this moment. So that's the rest that they're seeking. And the writer says that if you give up on Jesus to seek that rest, you are hardening your heart towards God's true eternal rest in Christ. Like if you give up on Jesus to go after that rest, you are essentially like the people in Canaan who gave up on entering the promised land to wander in the wilderness and be judged. 
So rejecting God's kingdom, which is larger and lasting and eternal, is much more dangerous than giving up this temporary rest that they might achieve if they overthrow Rome. And so it's this huge, important word for this little Jewish community to receive that, man, if we go after this false rest, if we join our brothers in arms and, and do that, we're essentially hardening our heart towards God and towards Jesus. And so instead, what the writer calls them to do is, look, you need to persevere in faith. You need to strive to enter this true rest in Jesus and trust that God is the one that's gonna bring you into his own rest in Christ. And so today, if you hear his voice, I mean, the writer's saying, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. He's, he's wanting them to listen. He's wanting them to say, this is so important. I need you to hear this. So what does that mean for us, though, right? Like, we're not, we're not trying to overthrow Rome. But the truth is, it is a word for us, too. Um, the American church, we have not ever been good at persevering in faith and uh, suffering, rejection for our faith. It's not something we're good at or even willing to do, right? And, and so instead, both left or right, we wage war at some sort of political, social battle with the goal of finding a more comfortable place for our faith to fit nicely in. If we can vote this in, if we elect this person, if we cancel them, if we malign that, then we, in our faith, can rest more comfortably and, and securely with our beliefs winning the day. But like the Hebrews community, these are temptations to seek a false rest. And I don't think we know it. I don't think we believe it. And, and the truth is, the, if you look back at the Canaanite story of them entering the land, the vast majority voted against going in. And, and so that's important for us to realize. Don't think that just because the vast majority of Christians are fighting these false fights means that they're right. Jesus was never swayed by majorities. Like, that was not his thing. Like, oh, what? The, a bunch of people think it? Okay. Like, that, that was not his deal. And so the message to them and the message to us is that Jesus' kingdom is an unshakable kingdom. That's where the writer's going to go in, a, in just a few chapters. And that that rest is open to us today. So don't harden your heart towards it, but persevere in faith and strive to enter. And when we do that, God himself promises that he will see us through, right? 
that suffering to glory is the way the gospel works. That yes, we will live in conditions that may grow more and more hostile to our faith, but suffering now leads to glory later. And our job is to realize that Jesus' rest is never gonna come from us trying to escape suffering for our faith. Like we're never gonna enter that rest somehow by getting out of suffering. And so, and yet I can hear objections to this. Like are we supposed to just sit back and condone immorality? Are we supposed to uh, let injustice happen? Are we supposed to let political opponents have their way when we believe that they're offending God? Are we to let greed destroy people and the environment? And the list could go on and on and on, right? We could write these ourselves. In other words, what we're saying is when our faith is threatened and the conditions we live in grow more hostile and immoral, shouldn't we fight against that? And, and so here's three answers that I would give you. The first is this, when the issue that we fight for becomes a way for us to secure our faith and get out of suffering, I think we're in danger of exchanging God's true rest for a false rest. Let me say that again. If we are going to fight for something that remove suffering for us. In other words, it helps us to secure our faith and fit more comfortably in this culture, then I think we're in danger of exchanging God's true rest for a false rest now. Meaning, we are turning this kingdom into the kingdom. And this is not the kingdom, right? This is just a... a, Bad night stay in a bad hotel on the way to somewhere, right? And, and every cultural kingdom throughout history has been the same thing. Now, it's better than some and most, perhaps, but it's not the kingdom of God. And to, and to believe that it is or that we can turn it into it is to miss the whole plot of Scripture. And so... If we're in danger, what we're in danger in, in, in exchanging sort of, uh, if, if, we, if we try to fight the, for those false rests, what, what ends up happening is I think we're in danger of hardening our heart towards God's true invitation to his church, which is persevere, persevere, strive. Right to be faithful in the midst of hostility and trust that Jesus will get you through, right? The second, I would say, is there will be issues that we are called to fight for. And, and when fighting for those issues is going to require suffering from you, laying down your life for other people, that is an example of a fight that I think Jesus calls us into, 
right? That we sacrifice ourselves for love. Uh, that kind of fight usually results more in a longing for the kingdom to come than trying to establish a false kingdom now. And the third thing I would say is that the American church desperately, we desperately need a vision for what faithfulness and perseverance looks like from the global church, right? Uh, we don't, we are not going to get this from the American church or from the church in the West. David Brooks, a couple weeks ago, wrote a New York Times article called Can These Evangelicals Save Their Movement? Um, and he, he talked about um, the future of the Christian church, and he interviewed the president of Fuller Seminary, and he said the future of the Christian church is not going to look like the past. Today, many of the most dynamic sectors of the faith are in immigrant communities, in Korean, African, Hispanic churches, for example. And in the decades ahead, the American church is going to need to look a lot more like the global church. So at Fuller Seminary, that future is already here, and that has changed a lot of things. For example, after ISIS launched a series of deadly attacks against Egyptian Christians, and there were Egyptian Christians at the seminary, some Americans at Fuller wanted to hold a memorial service. And the Egyptian students said, in effect, what are you talking about? This is a cause for celebration. This is about acknowledging what it means to live as a Christian in a context in which you have the privilege of being a martyr. And that idea is completely foreign to most American Christians. But the Egyptians led a celebratory service which was followed by communion in the form of Jap a Japanese tea ceremony. In other words, the, the pictures of the martyrs with the communion set in front of their pictures. Now, where did the Egyptians get this idea, right? That, that suffering leads to glory. Where would they pick that up? Well, the Bible happens to talk about it a lot. <laughs> the Bible tells us that when you suffer for Christ, you count it a privilege in joining in his sufferings. Paul over and over is saying, I count it a privilege to participate in his sufferings, to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That is what these Egyptian students are doing, even in letting go of their brothers and sisters. We want to hold a funeral. God, how could you? Why, God? Where did you go, God? They want to throw a party. As in heaven, so on earth. We need to learn from our global sisters and brothers what it means to persevere and strive to enter his rest. I mean, hostility to my faith is like, man, it was hard to park today. Lord, I don't know. Like, you know, I mean, <laughs> it is, we're, we're so challenged when it comes to words like persevering. And I think the point is that God wants to bring us as a people 
into his Sabbath rest through Jesus, that, that striving and persevering right now, no matter what we suffer, is guaranteed to lead us into that Sabbath rest because Jesus, the Son of God, suffered for us and overcame to guarantee that we could get there. And so if we harden our hearts, if we refuse to trust him, if we, fuse, if we grab on to false rest and, and false fights, then we'll be judged. But if we grab on to Jesus, the writer is saying God will do it for us. And, and then, so, so it's interesting that verses 12 through 13, these verses that you'll have read and heard uh, if you've been in the church any time at all, about the Bible show up in the context that they do. So in verse 12 and 13, the writer says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that that passage has always been ripped out of context and been like, see, the Bible's true which I believe. But it's in the context of this passage, which essentially is saying, we need to take God seriously, right? His word is active. What he's spoken in terms of being able to save us or judge us is true. And he knows us better than we know ourselves, meaning he can he can slice between our attitudes uh, and our thoughts, like places we don't even know there was a separation. He's able uh, to both bring us into his rest and also know when we've hardened our hearts to him. And so what do we do when people as broken as we are stand before a God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, that knows everything about us like that, right? And knows when I haven't persevered and knows that I'll, uh, I'll give up a false fight. I mean, I'll give up a false fight with Netflix like uh, to enter the rest of God. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it after I binge this, you know, 12-hour uh, miniseries or whatever, how do I, how, like, how do I have confidence in myself? What do I do in that place where I know my weakness? I know the false rest that I want to cling to. I know my tendency to not want to persevere in faith. Where, what do I do when God can look down at me and go, man, I can splice this attitude and thought actually and I'm like what <laughs> that's not good <laughs> well look at verses 14 through 16 and we'll wrap up here this is what gives me hope therefore since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, 
But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace of help, of, find grace to help us in our time of need. So this is the good news. Thankfully for you and I, Jesus is in heaven right now. There is a man in a glorified body that can never die serving as your great high priest. A man who was tempted to give up uh, all suffering starting before he even entered his ministry when Satan said, just, just bow your knee to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You could be king of kings. And he said, no. In the garden, the night before he's, he's crucified, Lord, take this cup from me. I don't want to die on the cross, and yet not my will be done, but your will be done. In other words, uh, give me a different rest. Give me a, a different path. And yet he persevered and he suffered for us. He knows what it is to be tempted to sell out the kingdom, but he never did. And he's the one that you go to, that I go to, when we feel weak, right? And he says, don't just come to me in shame, come to me confidently, right? Because I know what it feels like. I know what it means to be weak. I know what it, what it means that you would rather have your faith fit comfortably in this world. I know what it's like to be in the world but not of the world. But come to me because I will give you mercy. I will give you grace. I will give you what you need in your time of need so that we can get to that rest. Right? Amen? Yeah. So he knows the temptation to escape suffering better than anyone, but he didn't give in to it. He persevered, he bore the cross, he conquered the grave, and right now he is enthroned praying for you every hour of every day to completely save you. So what we do right now is what our Egyptian brothers and sisters do. Right, We hold fast to Jesus. We approach God's throne with confidence in Jesus and go, I need mercy. I need mercy. We approach him with confidence and say, I need grace. We approach him uh, and say, uh, God, forgive me. I hardened my heart. I don't want to harden it today. I hear your voice. I'm coming by faith. And so, God is merciful today. He's ready to forgive us today. He's ready to receive us today in Jesus. And so there's no one that we need to argue with to convince. There's no fight we need to take up right now. We just need to come to Jesus. The one who suffered unjustly at the hands of immoral people so that he could bring us into the Father's rests. 
So there's two invitations. If you hear him, right? If you hear him, you need to surrender to him. Right? That's the first invitation. And the second one is if you find yourself in this place today where you're like, Lord, I've been, I've been fighting for all these false rests over and over and I'm tired. Like if, if this is your time of need, right? Then today is the day that you need to approach God confidently and ask him for mercy and grace. And Jesus will pour that out on you today by the Holy Spirit. And he will pour out his love on you. If you surrender to him, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Come and let the love of the Father be poured out on you by the Holy Spirit today. And so the prayer team will be here to receive you. Um, And I, I just want to invite us maybe to quiet our hearts for a few seconds before the Lord. And invite the Holy Spirit to examine us, to search us today. Father, you are the God who sees all and knows all. And you can look within our our hearts and our stories and, and you can judge our thoughts and our attitudes And your word speaks, and it speaks as a knife, and it cuts through all of our self-deception and all of our self-righteousness. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters today who, who have been hardening their heart towards you, who have wanted to fit nicely into this world and not heeded your voice. I pray, Holy Spirit, that as you speak to them, as you tap them on the shoulder, convict their heart, however it is that you're getting their attention, that they would know that it's your voice that they're hearing and that they would respond to you by saying, Jesus, I believe in you. I'm coming after you. I'm going to cling to you. I'm going to persevere for you. And then for those of us, God, who who just need to come to you because we are so tempted to sell out to some false rest that isn't you, would you give us that boldness and confidence to approach your throne because you know you empathize you sympathize you have felt every pain every infliction you've you've suffered worse than we ever will and yet you are standing there as one who is sympathetic to us And so when we are at our weakest, you are at your most sympathetic. So meet us, I pray, as we seek you for mercy and grace. Would you pour that out on us by the Holy Spirit? And so we give you this space now to come and minister your love. Come and minister your discipline. Come and minister your correction. Come and minister 
your freedom that we might not walk out of here with a fresh sense that you've got us and that we will strive and persevere and enter your rest. Thank you, Lord, for being our great high priest and our one true king. Amen.